other people wrote about them before me, because this whole question of the mysterious deaths was already in the air quite quite soon, and that was uh, that was a float. That that I, it was probably a man called Penn Jones, who was another of these very colorful figures. Who got, he was a very gutsy editor of a local newspaper in I think Midlothian, Texas, and uh, I did meet him. I said Fletcher Prouty was colorful. I think maybe had a bit of the from the South. The, the South of the United States is a richer oral culture than the North. And uh, nobody could have had a more colorful uh, use of American English than Penn Jones. I only, again, met him once or twice. But these were memorable people to meet. Penn Jones was a memorable guy to meet. And here he is, a lone reporter in a state where gunplay all the time is unfortunately we've just seen in the last week. And guns are, you know, they, far more people not only own guns, but carry them. And guns are available. That's one of the obvious things about the assassination. Lee Harvey Oswald is supposed to have acquired a, both a rifle and a revolver. He could have gone into a shop in Dallas and bought them, and no one would have ever known. And if he was a conspirator planning to murder people, that's what a conspirator would do. Oswald didn't do that. He ordered both of them from mail-order firms outside the state of Texas, the rifle from Chicago and the uh, the uh, revolver I involved a firm in Montreal, my hometown. And uh, then when you learn that the, uh, there was a Senate committee in that year that was investigating mail-order gun sales because they wanted to do legislation, and they introduced statistics, and they're recording the statistics for the number of rifles ordered from Dallas in that year. <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald, you would think, was because there's other evidence that the most obvious evidence linking Oswald was that um, he pretended that he was a anti Castro uh, militant, was willing to uh, train people in uh, use of, of we uh, small arms weapons, and he goes to the DRE, which is an anti-Castro-Cuban outfit in New Orleans, and he's pretending to help them. And then four days later, he's pretending to be pro-Castro and handing out literature for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and gets him involved in a, quote, argument with the same people because they say, oh, he was faking with us. Well, he was faking both times, and they knew it both times. And I could go on and on. And the first interview with him, when he's pretending to be anti-Castro, is uh, it was taped. And I've had people say, well, they didn't have tape machines in those. They, they didn't have small tape recorders. They had to have big ma tape machines. Well, you, we actually have a transcript and testimony in which somebody comes in and plunks a radio down on... When Oswald is talking to the DRE, the man had a, a kind of electronics store, and somebody came in with a radio to be fixed, and they plunked it down on the 
on the counter next to where they were talking. So I think that was the tape recorder. And that's a whole interesting story involved Bill Colby, but, but he, not for this not for this show. That's one of the things that you learn is so much that's interesting that you uh, you you investigate these things and you learn things that and they're you know, things that deserve to be known and nobody's ever written about them. So that's what's kept me to my great displeasure. I'm mad at myself that I was hooked on the assassination so long and here I am getting hooked again. This whole underlying underworld that was not completely monolithic and centralized, but had some sort of organizational structure, yeah. which also made it more manipulable uh, for people who had the authority of the state. So like, as you mentioned that Ruby was an informer and, uh, you know, helped to you know, probably get some people arrested while at the same time facilitating the other drag, drug traffic, this suggests like, you know, a, a way of managing the drug traffic and keeping law enforcement involved in this as well. Uh, so that the competitors might end up being, you know, eliminated. And then you you have the guise of like, you know, vigilant law enforcement because people are getting arrested. Now, you talked about the murder. Uh, in I, I can I respond. I, I'm sure. just, I, would, I just wanted to respond to what you said, which is very true. But a lot of the organizations, so-called, of crime really comes from outside. For example, um, you have in the 30s, you now have a new, much more aggressive CIO, uh, uh, the CIO, the AFL-CIO. The AFL were the old unions, crafts unions, small unions. And now you're getting big business in the 30s and you're getting big unions, like the auto workers. And you're... and. Uh, Particularly, Henry Ford was very uh, anti-union. He wanted his plant run his way. He was a kind of autocrat. And when the unions came in and started organizing, he hired somebody to bring in people to break the strikes. And the guy he brought in went to the mob. And the mob brought in the people, and Henry Ford would then hand out dealerships to the people who were bringing in people from the mob, so that the whole East Coast went, and I'm not going to name the name here because I might get it wrong, but he's somebody who's regarded as a mob figure, but he was really organizing the delivery of people to Henry Ford, and there were a couple of other big industries. This happened in the garment workers in in New York. Um, in Chicago, the aldermen, were very corrupt, and they were, they wanted to get payoffs. But the fact that they got payoffs from certain people gave those people credibility over the other people. That meant that their people's crimes were not investigated, and their opponents' people's crimes were investigated. So it's not a very solid structure, but it's given a kind of... Uh, of integrity is the wrong word to use, because, but uh, a kind of quasi-unity because of the functions. The newspaper wars would be another example. Hearst had newspapers all over the country, and he hired somebody 
to organize goons to beat up the newsboys who were selling the, the thing of his contribution. Jack Ruby was one of those people, and he traveled out here to the West Coast. He was in San Francisco. And, uh, you, and you know, years later, after I had done my manuscript, uh, I, I knew that the, all, all these names were in, so fresh in my head that, that and we got a, suddenly a news story in the Chronicle. It was on my breakfast table, and I'm reading that they've just discovered that the city of San Francisco had a golf course, not in San Francisco, but in the East Bay, which they lent, they lent to a mob figure. Well, the mob figure was somebody who was in touch with Jack Ruby in 1934. I knew his name. I knew pretty much how he knew Jack Ruby and how they were both involved in the organizing the uh, newspapers, sellers, uh, giving them protection against their, because the opposition were doing the same thing that Hearst was doing to the opposition. That was just an excerpt from the American Exception podcast. To hear the whole episode, as well as archived and new episodes, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast at Patreon. There's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com slash American Exception. Subscribe and you can join us as we illuminate the dark side of the U.S. empire. Mm -hmm.